Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a physician or healthcare professional, this podcast is for you. It's where we learn about trauma-informed medicine and ways to build resilience in healthcare organizations. And we do this through stories. Through your stories and other professionals and patients, we listen to each other to transform medicine with compassion and curiosity about what it means to be a trauma-informed practice or professional. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use right away in your practice. So today, friends, I'm excited. We have Jennifer George on the podcast. Um, Jennifer is an award-winning author and podcast host of the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour podcast, which I had the privilege of being on previously, so I hope you all tune into that. Um, she is a compassion-focused physiotherapist with vast experience in both the private and public sectors of care. At the onset of her career, she became a caregiver for her chronically ill father, and it was these personal experiences of witnessing his journey through the healthcare system that ultimately shaped her professional practice. She has since spent the last 15 years learning and reflecting on the importance of communication in our health and educational systems. She is a mentor to future and current health providers on discovering their purpose, achieving fulfillment, and creating empowering patient experiences. Welcome, Jennifer. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Amy. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, that's kind of your, your formal bio. Is there anything else you would want listeners to know about you, who you are, or what you're currently up to in the world? I'm always up to something um, as it pertains to healthcare. I think it's just um, in me. It's just part of who I am. It's woven in my fabric. And um, I'm always just trying to make things a little better than when I found them or when I've experienced them and always trying to think of, you know, how I can have a greater impact. I've been very fortunate over my career. I've been practicing for 15 years as a physiotherapist and I've had so much experience. And then also, as you mentioned, being on the other side of the healthcare system as a caregiver as well. And for a while, my life, my life's running parallel that way um, and overlapping. I just feel like I, I've got some unique just experiences that I've had that can help others um, in their journey. So whether they're, you know, a seasoned clinician or whether there's someone who's just graduating an entry level and and kind of trying to find their their space in the system um, and where they can be a value I'm, I'm always willing to to help people create that for themselves so oh that's amazing you definitely have such a compassionate presence and energy about you mm -hmm. um, let's start because on this podcast, there's a lot of intersections of healthcare professionals. Let's start with people who may not know what a physiotherapist is. Um, mm -hmm. What do you do and what does that mean in day-to-day -day practice? Yep, so I'm a physiotherapist here in Ontario, Canada. Um, in the States, um, quite often you'll hear us referred to as physical therapists. So it's pretty much a registered title here in Ontario. Um, and so as a physiotherapist, my role is essentially to um, assist people through physical rehab. So really um, understanding their medical conditions, um, assessing appropriately, and also then developing and implementing a treatment plan that helps them to be, um, you know, more functionally independent, um, you know, just functionally, but also in their own environment and society and maximizing their independence while also minimizing um, their disability as well. Yeah. So Talk to us a little bit about how you came into this space. 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, so like going pretty way back, <laughs> um, I had my own physical health transformation in high school um, where I had to kind of take my own health into my hands and um, take better care of myself. You know, physically, I was I'm only five foot three. I was still five foot three back then and quite active and athletic. And I remember just feeling very uncomfortable in my skin. I, you know, I think I was in grade, grade 10 at the time. And I, I don't know, I think it was a combination of like hormones, but also the stress of being in high school and, um, and just also unhealthy habits that I didn't realize, you know, I was practicing. And I remember just feeling so uncomfortable. And one day I actually had weighed myself and I'm, I'm not somebody who's, you know, too focused on that, but, um, and I remember seeing that the, you know, I was weighing 189.9 and it was like, I had no concept of time. I, I had no idea how I ended up feeling the way I was feeling. And in that moment, I just decided to, um, to change things. So I engaged in better eating habits. I started exercising regularly. And, and so movement and exercise really has been a big part of my life for a long time. Cause I've always been active, but it was actually an, it actually had a positive impact on my health. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very proud to say that I sustained that weight loss of, you know, nearly 40 pounds um, and, you know, uh, kind of also got stronger in the process. Mm -hmm. So at that time in high school, I thought I was going to go into like pharmacy, psychology, like I, I was kind of up in the air and then, um, and I had no idea about like physio or human kinetics, kinesiology until I engaged in a fitness program at school and it was um yeah it was my teacher who told me about it and had nominated me for an award at the university like it's called the human kinetics book award um and that's when I became more familiar with kinesiology so I took that as my undergrad um I knew I wanted to be a part of helping people but I thought through physical rehab and that's what I was you know, learning more and more about. And then, yeah, from there, went into physical therapy um, school and got my master's in that. And talk to us about this intersection with your dad's illness and how that's shaped you as a, what I think you would describe as a more compassionate professional. Right. So, um, so in my second, so at the end of my first year, so um, I started physio school in 2005 and in 2006, I was home for a placement as my first placement. My dad wasn't feeling great at the time. Um, and so that night, um, he had developed like what he thought was a throat infection, just felt very sore in the throat. His stomach was bothering him. He went to the clinic. They prescribed him an antibiotic and, um, later that night in the middle of the night, he's, I heard him coughing in the middle of the night. And I thought, well, that's weird. And I kind of, I heard him vomiting as well. And I knew my mom was with him because I could hear her voice too. And they were in the bathroom and I thought, well, that's kind of weird. I wonder if it's just a side effect of the med. Didn't think mm -hmm. much of it. Um, so I got up because I could hear my mom say like, what is this? Like my mom just seemed very concerned. I woke up and I just saw, started walking down the hall and I saw my dad's room was lit up and his sheets were covered in blood. Mm. Um, he had like these pure white sheets just completely covered in blood and there was clots on them. And, um, and I was like, I, you know, I'm just kind of waking up from this deep sleep. Um, and then I made my way into the bathroom and my dad's hands were like up against the wall bracing um, as he was bending over the toilet and vomiting. And he was just vomiting like copious amounts of blood and projectile amounts. Um, like it looked like you know, a murder scene essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to the, so it was pretty significant to the point where I nearly passed out and made my way back to the room, called 911. 
Um, and it was, you know, from there, that's when everything started. We found out my dad was, um, he had end stage liver cirrhosis at the time. Um, and also liver cancer, which we didn't know he had, we knew he had cirrhosis, but he had been living with it. Um, and I guess the, the typical, um, timeline is 10 years. And I think he was at that point, but we didn't, he was otherwise. Okay. So we had no idea this really just came out of nowhere for us. So then that started the whole, um, advocacy for liver transplantation, because initially it was not something they wanted to risk and do given his age. Um, but after some advocacy on our part and them recognizing as well, that this was the only thing really that was making him unhealthy was his liver. Uh, they were agreeable to, um, assess him, um, and enlist him eventually onto the transplant list. So, um, yeah, so he ended up getting a phone call that they had a matching liver and I was in school at the time, same city that he would have his transplant in. And I thought this would be perfect. My dad will have his transplant. He could stay with me because I know there's an outpatient recovery period. Um, mm -hmm. And it would just be perfect. We were just waiting for this moment. He had hemorrhaged a few times in between as well. Right. So we knew time was of the essence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so sure enough, we get a call. There's a matching liver. Um, my dad, kind of prophesizes in a way um, and jokingly says to the surgeon, you know, are you sure this liver is good? I don't want to do this again. Mm. Right before his surgery. And uh, my dad was always very intuitive, um, just a very intuitive guy. So uh, the, you know, the surgeon said, you know, you always have a choice and we really, yeah, we understood that, but we also realized my dad, you know, was already jaundiced. He was sick. He was losing weight. Like he needed, he needed the transplant. You never know too, when an organ's going to come around. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so we obviously, um, had accepted it and, um, he got through the, he got through the, the surgery, like a champ, um, and everything went well from that standpoint. But then, um, as time went on, he just couldn't be weaned off of the ventilation. We ended up finding out that um, his organs were all shutting down because the liver hadn't uh, taken in his body. So, yeah, so we were kind of told mixed things at first that he wouldn't qualify for another liver. And then um, his transplant surgeon, who was amazing, um, and I refer to him in my book as his angel, really um, advocated for a second transplant and said he could do it basically because it was just he needed it. He was sick and he could tolerate a second surgery. So he was on the top of the nationwide list mm -hmm. and, um, got a second, uh, you know, li liver, a second chance at life. And, and that's really when, although that surgery went well, he was quite sick. So he developed quite a few comorbidities from that, like seizure disorder. Um, we were told my dad would never walk, talk, eat, breathe again on his own. We were told like the worst of the worst. And, um, and we just got through it as a family. Like my dad really wasn't conscious of for, for a long time, right? He was in a coma trying to heal essentially. Sure, sure. Right. So, um, and back then, this was back in 2006 and seven, you know, I was in my later twenties, like I was young, I'm, a, I'm the youngest of six and, um, none of us knew anybody that had been through anything like this. You know, you hear a lot about caregiving nowadays, but back then it wasn't really talked about at all. We were really pioneers in my opinion, going through this at that time. Um, or at least people weren't very public about it or that we knew of. Right. But we did, we, we formed a lot of connections in the hospital. So we knew people were going through things that were similar, but it just, um, yeah, it just, uh, seemed like we were alone a lot of times too. Right. 
So thank God we had each other. You know, I listened to this story and I'm a really big believer that this is how we learn and grow is through stories, through other people's stories. Um, and I hear that there's so many things when I think about trauma-informed medicine and responding and creating strength in families that I hear in that. Um, so what would you want someone to take away, a healthcare professional, for instance, mm -hmm. um, from that story? Yeah, I think while um, I think it's important as healthcare professionals that we realize while things may be, I don't want to say routine or nothing really phases us in a lot of ways because we, ex we secondarily experience so much through our patients' um, experiences and stories that it's still new to relatively new and life-changing to the person, you know, you're helping in the moment. And I think for me, that really grounds me, especially when, you know, you're feeling rushed. I think it's really important to ask yourself too in the moment if you're, you know, if you're racing against the clock right now, or if, you know, are you overlooking the person who's in front of you and just trying to check things off your task list, right? Which I know is a part of the care process too. And I understand that as a professional, uh, but it's always been my belief and my experience that um, things always end up working out. And I think, um, you know, for my, for us going through, the journey of caregiving, because my dad lived 10 extra years after that transplant. And that was a lot of advocacy. Yeah, we were very lucky because, and faith was really big for us too, you know, holding on to faith, because we were given a lot of bad news along the way. Um, some unsolicited, right, just people kind of projecting their biases on you too, right. So I think that's a really big thing as well. It's just being open, non-judgmental um, with your patients, kind of, kind of like you mentioned at the beginning, and be more curious, Right. I think if you're more curious, it kind of is a, a, a good gateway to compassion. Um, oh, I love that. I love yeah, that. Definitely. You know, what I say to, what I say to professionals um, on that same note is you may give this diagnosis a hundred times, a thousand times in your career. This family hears it one time. Exactly. You get one chance to really be compassionate with that family in their care. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, what else would you want people to, to know from that story and, and being professionals? Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a bit, <laughs> um, but in terms of like, I'm, and I'm just thinking of my own experiences too. I think um, coming from a place of compassion and concern, because we have to have hard conversations sometimes, right? Like that's part of the difficulty in our job and part of our own um, stress and burnout and all of those things lead to that as well. Um, but I think, like I mentioned, being non-judgmental, being curious, being compassionate um, and coming from a place of genuine concern for your patients where they can, they can sense that, that that's what you're, you know, yes, it's a hard conversation, but they're willing to be open with you. Um, to help you help them navigate this crazy system, right? Um, I think it's, you You kind of want to sh present yourself more as a, a partner in their care rather than someone who's just giving them care or providing care, right? Yeah. And um, I've had a few, like, the, the conversations never end. Um, you know, they really never do because again, it's new for them, right? And it's life-changing for them, even though we may have to have the conversation that might seem similar, but in different ways, because um, everyone's so different and has goes through their own experiences. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I really appreciate this idea of partnering in yeah. care. And I think that that's really a trauma-informed approach to collaborate with versus have power over someone's yeah. decisions. 
Um, can you think of a time in, in that journey? Um, and then I want to uh, explore a little bit more about the physical therapy, physiotherapist side, um, where someone did it really well and right. And your family remembers. Yeah, I would say oftentimes it was, um, my dad's transplant surgeon who really mm -hmm. like he would, so we would have these, you know, doom and gloom type meetings, right. Where you were getting the worst news from, you know, and that was, and that was the reality and I get it. it they were making evidence-based decisions and I understood that. Um, but then for instance, like the, the, um, the transplant surgeon would then talk to us afterward and say, you know, I know what you heard. I know what was said, but this is also what I think. And, it, you know, it was very courageous on his part too. Um, but we trusted him and, you know, we knew that he, if, you know, if we knew that they they felt bad in a way that the first transplant failed. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't think that it was out of guilt or anything like that for them. I think it was more just out of belief that he believed my dad just needed time. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the key messaging. He would kind of drip on us. Um, uh, and we, we believed in that and we believed in time and it really was time. My dad was in three different hospitals for, for over like a year before he came home. Wow. Um, and that was what he needed he, his body and in mind had been through a lot and uh but we had to advocate along the way so and that wasn't always easy but um if we found that one provider who we could connect with and again partner with and who helped us navigate um it's it's huge and i've always shared that with my colleagues that it's not just the care we actually provide in the moment but it's also empowering patients to also um kind of look beyond this moment and how they're going to move forward in their lives um, to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I want everybody listening to hear this message from Jennifer that it just takes one healthcare professional to say, yes, we get all the efficacious treatment to, you know, examples, protocols, all the things your dad maybe can't do or won't do. And whether that be Jennifer's dad or a child who's going through cancer treatment or a spouse that you love, who's trying to follow diabetes, you know, regimen, I want you to think about like, it takes one caring soul to say, give time, give faith, give love and support. And that those are the most healing things that professionals can do. And it really makes a huge difference. It really does. I didn't expect like, you know, I didn't expect him to have the, all, all the answers. I didn't know if, um, you know, he couldn't make any promises obviously, but we knew that he was there with us going through the journey yeah. that we were going through. And, uh, you know, and I think that's a big part of empathy and something I share with my students when they come into, to, um, to my clinical environment, I'm their preceptor, you know, they'll say things to me like, you know, Jen, I don't, I, how can I empathize? I've never been through this kind of suffering before. And, you know, and I, that's, those are great questions, right? And I'm glad they're reflecting on that because I think that shows awareness. Um, but I've always explained that, you know, empathy doesn't have to mean that you have to go through the same suffering or trauma, but we've all been through some kind of trauma and suffering. And, and I think the key is to try to empathize, try to understand where your patients are coming from, where their perspectives are coming from, where their feelings are coming from. And really try to let like convey to them that you're there with them along yes. the way, that they're not alone through the journey um, and that they can rely on you to help guide them through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it's, if it's helpful or for what it's worth for our listeners, what I would say is, you know, I reframe it as 
you don't have to have gone through that particular trauma or had that particular pain to be able to empathize with someone that you know pain, mm-hmm. you know loss, you know suffering, and that you're willing to hear it, what it's like for them. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That space of staying in curiosity and, and empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for people that are listening that are thinking, you know, like, well, how does trauma show up in physical therapy and physiotherapy? What would you say to people? You know what, Amy, like since our conversation on my podcast, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I remember when you reached out to me, I kind of said, I don't really know how I'm going, if I can offer much value in this space to you. And you're like, you're like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what you do. And I don't even think I've realized it until um, you made me more aware of it in a way. Um, Yeah. So I I appreciate you for that, for sure. but yeah, I see it show up in so many different ways, like trauma, especially with respect to pain. Um, I've seen like, like, for instance, this one particular uh, patient who came in a while back to the hospital, um, he had chronic leg pain, kind of undiagnosed and weakness, uh, undiagnosed, um, and came to rehab to get stronger, um, to you know, become more independent with walking again, and that kind of thing. And I could just see in my conversation with him that there was something else kind of going on more so kind of behind his emotion a little bit more. And I can't remember how I said it, but I was asking him about his social history. And, and he actually said that, um, so the day that I was assessing him was the day that he had lost his spouse five years ago, like it was literally the same. So it made total sense to me, right? The emotional trauma, you know, to me, and I, when I, when I kind of brought that up to him, it was kind of like, wow, you know, he was just, even though he wasn't fully aware until I mentioned it, it, for sure, it it was there, right? Or part of uh, where he was at, and probably part of his physical pain. Well, uh, I I love this idea, right? Because people go to physical therapy or physicians refer patients for physical therapy um, to rehabilitate. Yeah. But this concept of pain Mm. is so important to think about when we think about how to be more trauma responsive, right? That pain is so individual. It's so independent day to day moment of functioning. And here's this, this patient that you're seeing who the anniversary of the death of his wife, of course, he's experiencing more pain. Exactly, exactly. And it validated, you know, what he was really feeling, not just physically, but emotionally, too. And I I really see those full circle moments a lot in my practice. Um, But I, I don't think I've ever like, defined it as trauma in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've only been real, like becoming more and more aware of that in recent, uh, recent years, but um, I see that a lot. So pain is a big thing. It's just so multifactorial. And again, as clinicians, we may understand the condition. um, But again, you're, you're working with someone who's been through pain that might be different from, from us. Right. I I really like the image of the iceberg, the tip Mm -hmm. of the iceberg. And I'm sure you've seen that uh, because there's really more to everybody than meets the eye. Yeah. And I really believe that we only really have the opportunity to scratch the surface of things. But for me, um, it's really important to bring the whole person into the the picture as a clinician um, and talk about, you know, their lives and, you know, their livelihoods and their families and, um, and in relation to maybe their injury and condition. So what do you say to people, Jennifer, right? There's a little bit of a barrier that I run into at least, right? Where they're like, of course, Amy, well, you're a psychologist. You're super comfortable talking to people about their feelings, Mm. but 
here we have a beautiful example of a physical therapist saying it's actually okay to talk about more than just what's happening physically with someone. What do you say, Jennifer, as a physiotherapist, like yeah, level with talking about other types of pain? Um, I, I, it's more really question asking. It's not really, because I think patients also come from the perspective of physical pain too. Mm -hmm. And they're coming to a physiotherapist to heal their physical pain mm -hmm. and heal their physical injury. But it becomes more than just that, um, unless it's a very clear cut acute case, which quite honestly, it's not so much it, right nowadays, we see a lot of people dealing with chronic pain, chronic disabilities, mm -hmm. comorbidities. Um, there's just so much layer, so many layers going on. Uh, but for me, it's, I do a lot of question asking, like I'll, I know my patients so well that if I find that they're off, for instance, or they're different, I might just say, Hey, you seem kind of different today. Or is everything okay? Or how are things? Um, and I, I find that people are pretty open. I just try to keep it open-ended and mm -hmm. not so I don't want to lock anybody in. Right. So I, I just try to keep it conversational open. And then we, you know, we we're very fortunate at our um, facility. We have like uh, spiritual care, we have social wow. work support, we have psychology support. So I ask my patients if it's okay, if I make, you know, a referral so that they can share what they're feeling and they don't have to do it alone. Right. Because a lot of times, you know, social, um, social matters come up. Um, and, you know, I can, I can only do so much, but I think part of, again, of what we do as physios, but also as all clinicians is we connect our patients with the team, um, and providers who can help. Right. So, um, I, I really too am of the philosophy, especially nowadays is that, um, patients need a team behind them, not just one yeah. person. Yeah. I'm yes. noticing that more and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Say more, or maybe share a story where you saw that work really well for a patient that without having a care team behind them, because I think sometimes, especially I will say in kind of the American dominant culture of like, I alone can solve the world's problems at times, uh, we kind of lose focus that a team approach would be appropriate and holistic for this person. And so what say you, Jennifer, about having this, it sounds like really beautiful, well-rounded team. Right. And I, you know, I think, um, so in my first five years of practice, um, Amy, I worked in like a clinic setting. I worked in um, long-term care. I, I did a little bit of community work. So oftentimes I was the main provider mm -hmm. and um, it wasn't until like, I just always felt like there was something kind of missing, right. When it came to my patient care, um, I just, it's always like this insatiable feeling that you can do more, you know, we can, we can do better. We can provide more. Um, and that's kind of where I think I'm always coming from. Um, but it wasn't until I started at, at the hospital that I was at where it literally felt like, you know, I could breathe because I felt like we had a team and we do, you know, on an inpatient rehab unit, we're very fortunate to, but I do think that has to now be carried over into primary care, yes. right. And into the communities more so. Um, so part of, you know, I, I still have patients who will, um, reach who have reached out to me at the hospital, um, because I, you know, I help them navigate, you know, while in hospital and they felt like they could reach back out to me and ask, um, for my help to, you know, how they could connect with the next service provider in the community type thing. If that wasn't already set up for them before they left. Um, and I, I take pride in that, you know, um, so 
Yeah, I just think that um, that's where healthcare is going myself, just from my perspectives and my experiences is that we don't have to do it alone as providers. And I think that leads to also for healthcare workers, a global um, relief and stress and hopefully minimizing their burnout oh, risk as well. Yeah. Right. Like if you think about Not it, more, right. Also for the provider. And um, yeah, I think that if we can just better coordinate services and transfer that inpatient, maybe approach to um, a community approach and not be so fragmented in the community I think that would you know truly help our patients and help you know them become more empowered as well in their decision making and, and expressing and what they outcomes, need right you know yeah absolutely yeah it always comes back to that I mean um patients have to they're, they're coming to you for a reason they're coming to you for a, a goal in mind um and again having honest discussions realistic discussions around their goals I find some Sometimes patients either underestimate their goals or they overestimate them. And I'm trying to kind of meet them somewhere in the middle, uh, given the timeline that we have and, and things like that in the system that we're, we're bound by in a lot of ways. So, um, so that's really where we partner, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm, I have those conversations with people pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Based on your, all of your professional and lived experience, what do you think we're not talking about in healthcare, especially as it relates to, you know, being more curious and compassionate in the care that we provide? Um, I think we have to recognize that, and again, this is why I started the podcast, um, is that the the way we feel as providers and, you know, the moral injury or the stress and the burnout risk that we're experiencing will inevitably, in my opinion, spill over into our patient interactions. For me, it's because of what I've been through as a healthcare provider with my dad um, and caregiving. It's always been about creating those empowering patient partnerships at the end of the day. And so I think what we have to realize is that we have to support our healthcare providers as well, um, you know, at every level, level so that they get the resources they need so that they can provide empowering or create empowering patient experiences. Because if we're burned out, you know, if you feel unsupported, if you're not able to debrief and talk about your experiences and don't have the space for that, um, then it's really hard to continue to provide care and meet people's needs um, in a way that's fulfilling for you too, right? Yes, yes. I mean, and I think for professionals who don't think that will happen to them, uh, that's a little bit of naivete, right? That ultimately- we, uh, uh, even if we're the most consummate professional person we can think of, our struggles, what we internalize are going to have an effect on people that we care for if we don't care for ourselves as well. Absolutely. And that um, I just would like more awareness, would like to see more awareness around that. I think healthcare providers are doing what they can. Um you know, and I think some are not asking for help. I th- I've always felt that we we need to be more invited in as opposed to um, just expecting them to reach out, right? Um, you know, I think having more of an invitation um, for support is in extending that would be helpful. Yeah. yeah. And creating that space for um, for providers maybe in real time to have real and honest conversations about how they're feeling, 
just to say the day was hard, perhaps they've lost a patient, you know, you know, there's a lot that goes on in a day. I've always said, like, I have hundreds of conversations a day, right? And when do you really have the time to process it all? So I've had to, you know, develop my own sense of resilience and build that pretty much individually on my own. And that's just, I think in part, because I went through what I went through with my dad too. Absolutely. And so I just want to point out a a few really tangible things that people can do, right. That are feeling me needing to process information. You know, I love that you have this podcast, first of all, right. Mm -hmm. That's the the provider happy hour podcast to just get uplifted and fill up your cup a bit. Um, folks who listen to me know that I run a learning collaborative every month mm-hmm. and anybody that wants to just pop in and come to one of our meetings and learn about it, it really is a connected space of community for that exact reason, reason Jennifer, to invite like-minded professionals in to say, what we do is really hard work and it's a lot to hold, but you don't have to do it alone. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then it sounds like you have a book too. Um, Do you want to just talk to us a little bit about your book? Yeah. So I wrote my book in 2019. It's called Communication is Care, Nine Empowering Strategies to Guide Patient Healing. So we lost my dad. My dad passed in uh, 2018 um, in May. And a few months after that, I just had this nudge, you can say this inspiration to write this book. And it was like everything I ever experienced as a caregiver and as a professional kind of came together and there was a sense of urgency to write it. And I remember standing in the kitchen of my friend's uh, house and I said, you know, I'm going to write this book. And uh, I've always wanted to write a book. I've always told myself I'd write a book. Like I love to write and um, it's something I've always just done. And I just never knew what it would be about. And mm-hmm. so the, the book, yeah, the book is a guide for healthcare professionals to create um, empowering patient experiences through communication. So it goes through nine strategies, um, but also it's a personal narrative of our our story. And what I really wanted to provoke through the book was empathy, right? I didn't want it to be just another textbook, you know, so it might sound a little bit um, more knowledge intellectually based, but it really is a story. And I, and people have really read it like in a couple of hours, it's a very quick read. That was another thing. Healthcare Mm -hmm. providers don't have a lot of time, right? So, or students, right? So I'm, I'm, these are the things I was thinking about. So it's only like 30,000 words. It takes a couple hours to read and Mm -hmm. people have really run with that. Um, They've really helped them develop more awareness around their practice. um, And people were really moved by the stories and really connected deeply with them. Awesome. Well, we'll link up to it in the show notes, but I think what a wonderful blueprint for folks who might need a little bit of scripting help support on how to have some of these compassionate conversations that help families heal. So I love that. Um, All right. I'm I'm noticing our time and I want to be cognizant. I have a couple of what I call rapid fire questions for you, Jennifer, if you'll indulge me. Yes, I'll Um, try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's one thing that you think people get wrong about trauma in healthcare? I think that there's a way to do it right, mm. you know, but they have to be perfect at it. Yeah. Um, and I think like you've always said, if you come from a place of curiosity, concern, compassion, mm-hmm. I think that the person you're, that's on the receiving end of your care um, can connect with that. And I, I think that that's um, a good place to start mm-hmm. uh, and develop trust and build that rapport. I love it. Um, if you could go back and talk to young Jennifer, the young physiotherapist, um, what would you say to her now? I would say I'm proud of you that you've been through a lot and you'll go through a lot, um, but it'll make you a better 
provider for your patients mm-hmm. yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, deeply fulfilled in your work. Mm. Yeah. Often in healthcare, people get intimidated by those of us that are professionals, right? We're mm-hmm. experts and authorities. Um, will you share something that makes you a messy human? Just like one oh, perfectly yeah. imperfect thing about you, Jennifer? Oh, um, perfectly imperfect thing. I'm not um, thinking about this because I think I'm perfect in any way. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm almost, you know, I can be hard on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've recently been through a concussion oh. and um, it's taken me a while to heal, heal from that. But I'm thankfully, knock on wood, um, feeling more and more my, like myself every day um, again. But I, during that process, so being on the other end, on the other side as a patient, um, a lot of what I was hearing in you know, trying to receive was to be kind to myself, mm-hmm. be compassionate towards myself um, for where I was at, for what I had been through and for my progress. Cause for me, it was just like, why am I not here yet? Like why, or why do I keep having these exacerbations, you know? And it was like, I was getting upset with myself in a way for not being there enough. Cause again, as a healthcare provider, you think you're supposed to just know it all and yeah. fix yourself. Get better. Yeah, exactly. And you're the one that knows how to help yourself best. But in reality, sometimes we need to step outside of ourselves and let others guide us. And, you know, I I had a great rehab team for months and um, they, you know, they really helped me and kept plugging away with me. Um, So I'm very grateful for the care I received, but also learning that about myself as well is that I can be pretty hard on myself. Gosh, I hope people are really listening to a couple of themes that Jennifer's bringing up, team approaches to healthcare, whole people approaches to healthcare, compassion, Mm -hmm. patience, and grace. I mean, these are things I keep hearing you say over and over and over. So I really appreciate that. Okay. Last question. It's so, it's so hard, (laughs) Jennifer. Um, It's 11 o'clock at night um, or choose your time and having a food craving, what do you reach for? Oh goodness. Um, pizza or ice cream. I love it. If I'm allowed to have two, it'd be pizza or ice cream for sure. (laughs) You can have two. You can have two. Um, if people want to learn more about you and your work, we will link up to everything, but what's the best way to reach out to you or learn more about what you're doing? Yep. So um, people can go to my website. It's jennifergeorge.co. And if you want, you can sign up for my, my Tuesday newsletters. Um, they haven't been as frequently I'm getting back to them, but, um, I do love writing them. Um, and from there, you can see my social media accounts. I'm most present on Instagram. Uh, my handles at best obsessed with Jen and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, and I'm also on Facebook. So Twitter, awesome. <laughs> so we my website will connect you there. And we will do that. We will link up to Jennifer's website and her podcast and her book all the good things so that people can find out more about this work. Um, Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing, you know, not just your professional self, but your whole self. I think that's really how we heal. Absolutely. Um, And thank you for having the space to do this um, and creating that for us. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it, friends. If you like what you're hearing in this space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a learning collaborative to build resilience. It's an incredible group of physicians who meet monthly, get CME, and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough topics. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing your own, because your humanity will heal others. 